Greetings and salutations. You are listening to the Into the North podcast, where we take a look at the competitive side of the Commander format, also known as CEDH. I'm your host, Lyndon, a.k.a. Noobzors, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Morgan, a.k.a. Spleenface. How's it going, everyone? And that's it for the crew for this episode. Another uh, uh, just, you know, two-person podcast. Hope you, uh, <laughs> hope you guys don't mind. But uh, yeah, in this episode, we're going to be covering deck impressions. Um, you know, and impressions, of course, you know, social media impressions. It's all about the uh, how many how many impressions you can get on your Moxfield page, you know, on any, any individual course. deck. Um, you know, shares, likes, views, all that. No, 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 I'm just kidding. Um, it's about how we perceive decks um, threat level wise. More or less, and we'll we'll get more into that as we as we break it down the main topic. Um, <laughs> yeah, so norm- normally, you know, in the show notes we've got before that, what you've been up to since last episode, but um, <laughs> this this episode is actually kind of a, um, a short order since the last episode that Morgan and Reed recorded. So I imagine Morgan, not much, not a whole lot. Yeah, yeah. well, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I, uh, yeah, not 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 a whole. Oh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess the uh, vintage cube is over, right? Yeah, we did. We did cover that on the on the last one. But, oh, nice. Uh, what you, what you was your final trophy count? It was twenty. Nice. Oh, nice, nice, very solid. Um, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> uh, well, without that, let's without further ado, let's jump into housekeeping, I mean, of which you, there you are none. Share it. It's been a little while for you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I quickly became so I. Uh, as soon as Vintage Cube launched, um, I was like, nice, Vintage Cube, let's get back into it. Uh, I then quickly got four trophies and was like, that first day or two was one trophy shy of being on the front page of, like, the trophy leaderboard. Um, and I had a couple two ones in a row and then I was like, fuck this shit, you know, like, I'm done with Vintage Cube, I'll just watch other people draft and backseat and that'll be my Vintage Cube. Um, you really, you did backseat. You de- I never I mean, deny. I, it's great. That's that's vintage cube is best played with other people, in my opinion. It's a it's uh, the social as aspect many of it. People just yeah. in a tornado of shrieking goblins, dude. The one the one time we were on the frog server playing a game, and there was an entire cohort of people just drafting vintage cube in the background, and everyone except. Everyone in the game except me had everyone else muted, so it was just like I'm. All the voices in my head are like for pack one pick, like forcing storm, you know, like and in the middle of a game. It literally felt like I was going crazy, but uh, I love it. I, I I can't get enough of it. When do you know when it's coming back? I don't. They, I feel like they run it a lot now, though, right? I feel yeah. I think it's it's it used at, to be holiday cube. Two, now it's just like three times yeah. a year now. Yeah. See, it's some dude. That must be like the only only reason a lot of people go to Moto, frankly. Um, but yeah, cool, cool, cool. Uh, no housekeeping, no new patrons since uh, last week's recording, and new developments. Uh, nothing really because you know there's also a short gap. So that just means more time for the main topic. Um, so yeah, the way we've kind of it, this is interesting because it's kind of a bit of a conceptual episode like how do people threat assess decks what is kind of the objective metrics that constitute um 
what makes a deck threatening and powerful. Um, so we had an interesting discussion pre-show kind of working out um, the language and, and kind of structure that we want to use for this. So I'll let you kind of kick things off with our deck power metrics and, and kind of explaining things and I can jump sure. in. So, so the first thing I'll say is that um, we're talking about decks and we're talking about our impressions of those, which includes uh, a measure of threat assessment, but we're not talking about threat assessment more broadly, which is often very strongly influenced by the actual game state or position in a game. Um, so the metrics we have for the power of a deck are uh, speed, which is fairly self-explanatory. Like goldfish, uh, yeah. Yeah, just how fast can it win? Uh, consistency, resiliency, inevitability, uh, disruptivity, and opacity. And by opacity, we mean sort of how obvious it is when the deck is in a threatening position and how easy it is to know what steps you need to take to stop it from being a threat or winning. As well as knowledge of what route or route, whatever, they would take to, you know, go for a win. So, because Morgan made a great example in our pre-show discussion of, you know, Blue Farm having seven cards in hand, they're obviously in a very threatening position. Um, and, you know, the knowledge of cards in the list and what the things do in Blue Farm is known. You know, people know that. But in that position, you know, it's because the deck runs so many different win cons, it's hard to determine what they're going to do. So, you know, how will you respond? What, what, what kind of interaction do you need to hold up or what kind of stacks pieces do you need to deploy? It's just not obvious if you have multiple options, but you can only choose one. So that's another factor in opacity. Um, yeah. So opacity is, is one of the more complicated kind of metrics we have here. Um, and just to, to clarify on, or, or on each of these metrics a bit, disruptivity is a deck's ability to disrupt win conditions and win attempts from opponents. Um, then inevitability is, you know, in the late game, which deck at the table has the best, you know, chances of winning, just taking over the game. You know, this, tends to be decks with very, very strong engines. So, um, you know, just a couple examples, Yorian, Azami, Thrasios decks, um, you know, things that scale really, really well. Uh, you know, TNK, Blue Farm is pretty... It, it, it has a very strong value engine in the command zone, but their, their engine really doesn't scale necessarily so um you know it's got higher inevitability as kind of like a floor than a lot of other decks in cdh but you know compared to like a thrasios deck with training ground seedborn muse all that stuff um those are going to be higher inevitability um resiliency is how resilient it is to um stack based interaction and stacks you know and and you can you can really break down resiliency into kind of further subcategories but we're kind of encompassing it all in one. And then consistency, um, I mentioned for speed, kind of the goldfish, um, what's its average goldfish. But the goldfish is, you know, a function of speed and consistency. Speed is, in theory, um, what's the fastest goldfish, right? Um, and how... Is it, God, it, they do kind of mix a bit, but... Um, I mean, all a lot of these metrics will have, like, 
either they'll overlap or there will be like certain things that you could classify as one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like that, you know, like obviously a deck that, you know, can be interacted with extremely easily and sort of shut down having low resiliency, it's going to be hard for that deck to be inevitable because like, if it's so easy to shut down, then how's it ever going to take over a game or whatever? But exactly, yeah. uh, consistency is just, yeah, it's sort of a, a composite of, you know, how quickly how is redundant it winning, it is, how yeah. often is it having, like, you know, sort of whatever you expect from it. Uh, is that, you know, is it pulling that out consistently? Does it often have protection? Does it have things like that? Um, a good example and- of a highly consistent deck is, like, Yisan, right? Where it's doing, and, and consistency could, you know, it's not necessarily linear, although Yisan is, can be quite linear. Um, but, you know, you've got a high redundant amount of things that are going to get you your turn to Yisan. And then from there, it is just, you know, find exactly whatever you want. And then the random aspects are going to be what you're drawing for turn. So, yeah, like that's kind of summarizes consistency. So, yeah, um, deck power is going to be, you know, and, and I, was, I was kind of uh, talking to Morgan about, like, uh, what, what is the name of that graph, you know, they have in, like, Pokemon with all the different, like, you know, things going up with all the different uh, pentagons and stuff like that, and Morgan's like, oh, yeah, that's a radar graph, um, a radar chart. So uh, that's kind of what you, know, you can envision where certain decks are going to have massive spikes on in different metrics, um, whereas, like, the better decks in the format are going to be kind of more well-rounded um, and have pretty high um, aspects in most categories. Um, and that makes it a powerful deck. So why, if we can kind of quantify all of these things for deck power, um, we can identify all these metrics. Why bother even talking about this in the terms of um, threat assessment? Well. It's because people aren't always accurate at gauging these metrics. Morgan, you want to talk yeah, well, some more about that? Sure. So I think I think there's two main ways that people uh, get this sort of wrong. The first is that with some decks, they, you know, if we go back to the radar chart, their belief about what the radar chart looks like and what the radar chart actually looks like there's just some mismatch there. They think the deck is faster than it is. They think it, you know, has a ton of uh, disruptivity, but it actually doesn't or whatever. Um, And, you know, there's a bunch of reasons that can happen and we'll talk about those later. The other is that um, essentially what you do is that you make something of a composite of all of these metrics and that composite is going to be weighted based on a bunch of factors. And that, uh, you know, can can definitely lead to sort of a, a mismatch in terms of how deck how threatening a deck actually is versus how uh, threatening you you think it is, even if your evaluation on each metric is actually relatively accurate. So I think we'll sort of do we, do we want to start with that or? Uh... Yeah. So like we've got yeah the the the, the discrepancies between the actual. Um, the kind of true value and, and what you perceive it to be, and then the difficulty or, or kind of um, not not adjusting your game plan accordingly or appropriately to the perceived threat level. So, yeah, there's two really 
ways that you know this can go wrong even if you're you know good at assessing it you're assessing it correctly or um you're assessing it incorrectly you know we're going to talk about reasons why um you're doing that but then also how you can maybe take advantage of that you know and and use that as an edge for deck selection into tournaments or you know maybe if you're at least just aware of it you can kind of cover up for your own um shortcomings in that sense so yeah let's get into the reasons for the discrepancy um in just the perceived threat level and we have we have a, a fun little fun little list here. Yeah. Uh, so I think the first one, and this one is huge, is um, the immediacy. So when when threat assessing a deck, you know, you sit down, your opponents reveal their commanders. The first thing you're looking for is are there any super fast decks here? Um, because obviously you need that information initially uh, to inform your mulligans, which uh, is the most play often the most player agency you're actually afforded in the early game. So when you sit down and you see, say, a Cody across the table from you, that immediately uh, colors your impression. But that also, I think, people are not necessarily good at sort of adjusting over time to, uh, you know okay, yes, I need an answer to make sure I don't die to Cody on, like, turn two or turn three, but then, you know, how does that change? And, and that's the same thing if you see, for example, uh, like, Rogsai. You know, they're obviously, they're trying to kill you on turn two or turn three just as much as Cody is, sometimes even turn one. Um, but the way people uh, adjust to those two decks as time passes, you know, may not necessarily be appropriate and as their threat level starts to wane um people remember that they're very fast decks and they can win really quickly and uh, continue to threat assess them very highly even if you know they're actually quite resource limited and you know not necessarily in a good position to win yeah they, they often occupy a lot of your thoughts you know a big portion of your your considerations on, on you know your mulligans and your actions and things what mana to leave up in the early game and people don't let don't shrink that that portion of your mind that it, that it takes up and, and think about it and it's always in the back of your mind maybe you know even if your 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 threat assessment for for other things might be right it is just kind of that it's scary right it's scary and it's in your head and and that can kind of weigh on you and your decisions so you know i think that's part of the reason why i think i'm not super high on rogsai or um and and you know i don't think i'd take cody to a tournament now that it's kind of more known i think that that discrepancy is um in an assessment and um adjustment really negatively impacts the win rates or how strong those decks can be yeah, you think for so? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think I think that this is uh certainly like extremely true of of Cody. Um I think it's a little bit less true of Rogsai, and I think that a lot of that has to do with the opacity of Rogsai. Yeah. In that you don't know exact like, you know, you know that they're gonna try and do something to you on turn two or turn three, but you don't know exactly what that is, and so you, you don't, don't know, know what, exactly <laughs> the easiest way to shut it down or whatever. Whereas with Cody, it's like, Hey, just don't let them activate Cody. You know, like that's a 
a very simple yeah. or I know exactly if you're what they're going to try Cody, and do. make yeah. sure the table has like four pieces of interaction. Um and so that like really colors the way people uh tend to play. Yeah, also the fact that like Cody is pretty, you know, it's very high in consistency, um pretty high in um resiliency means that people are, you know, even more scared of Cody. And so if everyone's being responsible and you're being responsible, like you're devoting a lot of energy to Cody and, you know, the opacity is low. So as soon as like, it, it, it's just, it's everyone's eyes are all, it's like the, the, the meme with like all the knives at the cat, you know, it's like, that's, that's the Cody player. Uh, but uh, yeah, Rogsai can get away with a bit more because of that opacity. And it's, it is interesting that, lowering those kinds of metrics might actually be advantageous and, and result in higher win rates. Um, yeah, so next reason we have on uh, for discrepancy in perceived threat level is clout. And clout is, is, is just a short form for kind of a longer discussion point, which is people... People shill decks, you know? People, we're, you know, we're all EDH players. We all have pet decks. We're all, we all put a lot of time and energy into the decks that we like and enjoy and care about, and we like to share it. Um, so if that's coming from um, someone who happens to have a lot of clout, then that means more people are going to hear it. So, you know, if you're hearing all about this ROG side deck because, you know, lots of people with big Twitter count, big Twitter follower counts are talking about it and, you know, well-respected members in the community are talking about it. It's like, well, you know, maybe I should give ROG Sai a lot more respect. Um, and maybe you might be giving it a bit too much respect in that sense. Um, and that obviously true for a bunch of other decks as well. Luckily, and, though, uh, you're listening to the Into the North podcast where uh, we only accurately assess things. So as long as you listen to us, uh, that won't be an issue. They'd, so. my, my, I, I, I've i proclaimed myself the least successful clout farmer in CDH based off of the views I have on my mox field for all my <laughs> stupid brews. Dude, <laughs> there is, there, it's, it is tragic. It is tragic, but honestly, I think that serves me well because, you know, if I was out there shilling Riel all the time and, you know, being like, hey, everyone, look at this deck and here's exactly how it works and blah, 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 you know, then probably do less well. Look, fewer well for our, <laughs> uh, our friends. <laughs> Dude, I, I can't, I can't believe they got me with that now. I, I, every time less, fewer, it's, it actually messes me up so much. Um, uh, the, thanks, Zach and Keegan. <laughs> the the next thing to to write this ship a little bit. The next thing we have is tournament results. Um, every time uh, a list does well at a tournament, uh, it immediately skyrockets up people's threat assessment. Uh, it immediately like the impressions of the deck get uh, you know I think distorted a little bit. CDH is a very high variance format, and uh, and you know something doing well once is uh not necessarily indicative of much uh and something failing to reach like the very pinnacle also doesn't necessarily mean much like as you know as often as people memed on you know uh blue farm best deck never won a tournament yada yada um like it was putting up a lot of top 16s and top fours and clearly performing and clearly a very strong deck and you know uh, Tazri with Zerda in the companion zone, 
has a uh, 60% tournament win rate, or 75% if you don't include draws, um, but that doesn't mean that it's a good deck, and I highly do not recommend anyone plays it. Uh, yeah, I think one thing, um, CDH players have a, I'll call it a complex, of competitiveness and, and kind of wanting to be seen as legitimate. Um, I, I think like, I mean, not, not just the players themselves, but like the format kind of as a whole where, you know, for a long time, you know, we were kind of not marginalized, but like we're, we're a small niche community of the EDH community, which is a casual format. Right. And then you see like all these 60 card players with like modern legacy. Um, these are the, the, the people who are going to GPs, there's tournaments, there's, um, you know, moto leagues where we're, you know, high stakes people treating it very seriously so we look at tournament results in those formats you know they have larger um like there's larger data sets to pull from um larger sample sizes so the results the tournament results you know that you see on mtg goldfish are actually a lot more meaningful um also because they're it's 1v1 there's a lot less like confounding factors and just in terms of like multiplayer politics and all of this stuff so you know it's so easy to want to be like oh okay well delver does so great in legacy um we can look at the, the tournament results for delver um and then try and like do the same thing in cdh but it just doesn't translate that well right um our tournaments we have much fewer tournaments smaller repeat like much uh a lot of repeat uh players in these tournaments um so yeah it's take tournament results with a, a grain of salt but um don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. there is still some useful information and um insights to be derived from those results yeah it, it is i think it, it definitely does put it into perspective though when you realize that uh you know a something like a gp is typically uh 15 rounds of best of three and then two rounds of best of five and then a round of best <laughs> of seven to to win yeah. which is you know uh quick maths 62 games theoretically um or like matches totaling 62 games obviously you don't play all of them because if you 2-0 or whatever but um and a cdh tournament is like uh i think the highest we've seen is like 10 games to win uh and yeah. it, it sort of uh puts it all into a bit of perspective of how much less uh statistically significant a tournament result is in in this format yeah yeah um i mean tournaments are on the rise you know we, we're seeing so many more events this year and um like new tournament orgs and and so like you know People also treating the format more seriously. We're dude, it's crazy to see like pro players <laughs> in CDH tournaments are talking about CDH. Still blows my mind. Um, but it's really, really cool. So, you know, people are treating it more seriously. So hopefully the uh we get bigger sample sizes, larger data set, um, and kind of just more quality data in general. Um, but yeah, for now, just uh treat it with a grain of salt. So next, um <laughs> we have community discourse. Um, so this is kind of an extension of, I mean, so we, these, these kind of, we've got we four points that are kind Twitter, of grouped, right? grouped together. Yeah. <laughs> like community discourse, clout, very similar, but it's not necessarily just clout based, but, um, 
the people with a lot of clout tend to be the ones driving the discourse. Um, but yeah, just if people have been talking about a particular deck or strategy um, in whatever sphere that you're in, um, be that Twitter, podcasts, YouTube, Discord, like it's just going to be fresh in your mind. So, you know, you're probably going to be thinking about it more like, oh, you know, I should be scared of this deck, you know, a lot more than this, some other deck that I barely know or it's not talked about. Um, you know, that's not good. <laughs> Don't do that. But unfortunately, you know, we are humans and we're fallible and we succumb to just all of these things without uh, being aware of it necessarily. Yep. Uh, next up we have, um, you know, our own... Uh our own echo chambers or sub communities, which is just, you know, while there can be certain beliefs or patterns in the broader community at large, uh, often, you know, whichever deck does really well in your meta, uh, or, you know, that people in your, your local group talk about a lot, um, that is absolutely going to color your impression. Uh, and it, you know, it can often be hard to separate, like, is it just the be that's the deck that you know the best player in your meta is playing like i know some very strong players who uh you know put up extremely impressive results in their local metas you know 40% 50% win rates whatever um is that because their decks are crazy strong i mean they're they're not necessarily weak decks but um if you you know if you were in that meta and you saw that it would be very easy to convince yourself, hey, this deck clearly must be extremely strong, when in reality, you know, it's either some idiosyncrasy of your meta, sometimes it's just the only player in your meta who isn't, you know, budget-constrained, I've experienced that in a few different places, um, or just the most skilled player um, can, can create a lot of perceptions. really is interesting just the kind of discrepancies between communities like even like just discord right because discord itself has a bunch of smaller communities but discord is separate from twitter is separate from facebook you know cdh exists and reddit exists in all of these different places and all of these um you know social media sites kind of form their own ideas about um the format but yeah in in the small kind of you know even discord and and sometimes like servers that are highly linked they form their own metas and people you know you can't play with a hundred different players regularly, or maybe most people just don't want to. Um, and you tend to kind of get a uh, siloing of particular archetypes and, and different, um, you know, metas settle in different kind of local, um, like, like, like stable, stable points, right? Like, um, so, you know, we talked about like the turbo metas before, you know, turbo Nas, like blue farm metas. And then, you know, our meta, which tends to be more, um, controlly and long game focused. And then there's, you know, I played frog server, which is very blue. It's just very, very interesting that these, um, how, how varying the conclusions you can arrive at in terms of like, what is the best deck and what is the best strategy to be doing? Um, just from your your own experience so it it's really you know speaks to you want to talk to other people play in different metas go go get out of your comfort zone to uh just get more information and kind of broaden your uh broaden your horizons man yeah um last point um we have is personal experience which i feel like is 
kind of summarized by what I was just saying, right? And, and what you were saying, just your own experience well, in your own meta. Well, so so this is, I would say, more, or, or like, looking at a sub-community is still, I would say, more data-driven. Like, you see this person in your meta who, uh, you know, puts up a very impressive win rate, and so, you know, you're, or or something like that. By personal experience, um, I would say more like just, I played against that deck and it just absolutely thrashed us three games in a row. Oh, um, you know, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, sure. And and so the next time you see it, you're you're on high alert. Um, and and like that's often one that that people, you know, it's easy to acknowledge is not like a good uh, basis for an impression. Um, but is still really hard to shake if you've had the experience of, of you know, just getting absolutely clowned on. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it's it is funny. I mean, I you you tend to see this a lot with um when you play decks that are that have very very polarizing matchups. Um, like when I play uh Thrasios Toggle Rocks. Like that deck just clowns on certain decks, like just completely, right? Like you're like, oh, you're playing a very commander reliant deck, and your commander has two toughness. Uh, <laughs> get fucked. Like, and then you know, come they come back and they're like, okay, rocks player needs to die immediately, even though you know that might not be necessarily the best evaluation of of things based on you know the pod composition and whatnot. Yeah, no, that can that can definitely weigh heavily. Um, yeah, I think that that kind of summarizes our reasons for discrepancy. Um and our last category we want to kind of talk about is cognitive biases. So I mean, the reason for discrepancy kind of some of these could be kind of summarized in terms of cognitive biases, but we kind of just wanted to, you know, talk about them using the actual language of the cognitive biases and and talk about the different scenarios. Some of them aren't covered by what we just talked about. Um, so first up we have recency bias, uh, and we have two types or two ways that it applies to, um, this kind of threat assessment or threat yeah, I, perception. I would say the, the first one is, is most obviously illustrated by, uh, the tournament results point. Like, you know, <laughs> we've, we've said as a joke, you know, whatever one, you know, when you win a CEDH tournament, like, you get to be the, your deck is the only CEDH deck for the next week. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, like, there's certainly, uh, you know, some truth to, we've we've seen a pattern of many, you know, pretty unknown decks or not super well-regarded decks that won tournaments and then people's assessments of them skyrocketed and it was, like, red alert all the time. You know, I think, not not to pick on, on anyone in particular, I think Magda was probably like the clearest illustration of this. Um uh-huh. and, you know, people, you know, it it won a tournament based on some some abs- some stellar play, absolutely. Um and then people sort of went like, "Oh, this deck is fantastic, you know, it's it's the new hotness." And then people went, "Oh, this deck, you know, when you were playing it, people were threat assessing it super highly because it must be great because it just won this tournament." Um and I think, you know, it didn't take too long for people to sort of realize, okay, maybe uh, maybe this deck is, you know, still a fine deck. It still has its strengths, but uh, not necessarily, uh, you know, the the second coming of uh, 
of of S tier decks that that some people might have believed. Yeah, no, and it is it is Magda. I really like as an example just to illustrate how much you live and die by threat assessment and how you're perceived by your opponents. Right? I think Magda basically had a pretty strong like you know it wasn't necessarily built to be super fast, but it can be. Um, but it is very consistent. Um, quite resilient um, to a lot lot of people were holding up um, interaction thinking that it would stop Magda when Magda's like no I can I can play through this easy um, very high inevitability um, it it's got the disruptivity as well in terms of tutoring uh, stacks pieces at instant speed um, and because no one knew what the fuck Magda did and, and how it won it had very high opacity so like it, it had decent power um, and people were just incorrectly assessing it too low. Um, and, you know, Magda was able to take advantage of it or Koibito was able to take advantage of that um, by taking Magda and, and taking down a tournament. But then immediately following that, you know, not even just people assessing it correctly, but, you know, the overcorrection um, just makes the deck almost unplayable, right? Like, you don't see Mag- people jamming Magda into a bunch of tournaments um, because it's like well, I, well, a lot of my edge was that um, that discrepancy in the uh, how they're um, assessing it versus what it really was. So yeah, um, I, I think it is interesting that a lot of times we focus on just the pure power level of decks. We can get lost in the weeds of just well, this deck is more consistent, this deck is faster, blah blah blah, and the individual metrics. Um, when really, what you might want to be looking at is what is the what are the actual power level metrics and what are other people's perceived um evaluations of those metrics for what to take to tournaments um yeah and then the other type of recency bias is the player who is most recently the threat or the player who is most recently doing something in the game right someone casts a um uh a demonic tutor Right or they they cast a um, I mean maybe you know some sometimes with like an ad nauseum if someone casts an, if someone goes all in on their combo turn they do a bunch of stuff and then they get stopped usually people are pretty good at being like eh that player is not a threat anymore but you know if they're doing something that is scary um, you're like okay wow they just cast a demonic tutor that's pretty scary meanwhile you're overlooking the person who's got all of this insane advantage and um, really should be evaluated to be the threat based on what they've done before, what they have on board, what they have in hand, um, and kind of how things are going. Um, so yeah, don't don't get too caught up in what just immediately happened every time. Try and take a holistic approach uh, to your threat assessment. Or, or like, I've certainly seen people... I mean, this, uh, an example of this that maybe does more, you know, is less about game position threat assessment is, uh, at, uh, tier one con, you know, Reed won his semifinal on turn two with everyone watching because, you know, there was one piece of interaction and he had the protection. Uh, and then I went into my semifinal with the same deck and the entire pod played a blue land and passed on turn one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which I think was probably overzealous, right? Um, there, you know, there's a middle ground that is not don't keep interaction for Cody, but also isn't everyone hard malt interaction for Cody. 
Um, but you know, when you see the the table before you just get clowned on, you go, "All right, well, that's not happening to me." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, another thing. Um, I guess this is kind of more in game as well. Um, is and this so uh, I don't know. Have we have we talked about APT on the podcast before? <laughs> I think it's come up once or twice. It, it must have, yeah. Um, but yeah, so we had we'd kind of um, or I, I'd we'd we'd come up with in our play group this uh, concept of actions per turn, um, in the context of casual, where in casual games you want to minimize your actions per turn because people get annoyed if you're taking too many actions in a turn cycle um or on a given turn so like you know that includes shuffling so you know tatiova in casual um is a great example of a deck that's tremendously annoying because it you know you're uh casting a rampant growth you're searching library for land shuffling etb draw then you're casting um cultivate you know and it just you keep chaining all of these cards and you're casting a fetch land or you're playing a fetch land and you know you're playing something off the top like it's it just all adds up to so many actions and shuffles and you're you're kind of dominating um the game time uh, or the, the the clock you know the collective clock whatever and that um i think translates also to cdh um where people tend to assess the player who's taking the most actions or doing the most stuff kind of in the general sense to be one of the more threatening players. And, you know, it's often because that, that tends to be true, right? You know, someone's doing, you know, Lotus Petal, Mana Crypt, Dark Ritual, Demonic Tutor, Ad Nauseam, Breed, like, you know, they're, they're just going off. They're going ham. Yeah. That player is obviously very, very threatening. But sometimes, um, they can just be spinning their wheels, right? Uh, you know, there could be a, um, I mean, notion thief. I mean, this was a lot with during Hall, um, Hall breacher meta, uh, was, you know, you just thrash these activations just for like the scry and finding lands, you know, in our meta sometimes. And it's like, man, is that player that that player is like activating thrash five times or, you know, 10 times in a turn cycle, but they're not really doing anything right. You don't, yeah, don't I, get confused. And I think this does also play into like on a less threat assessment and more deck perception level, um, people tend to view like combos and play patterns that involve a lot of actions as more threatening. Like if you, if you think about, you know, you're looking at an opponent who has, uh, you know, three mana in play. Let's say they, they had like a, some sort of acceleration, either like a ritual into a two-mana rock or a dork or something on turn one. They're going to be untapping. Uh, they're going to play a land, and that's going to set them to three mana. Like, uh, Dark Ritual Ad Nauseam or Mana Crypt Ad Nauseam or, you know, whatever, is uh, a threat you have to worry about from many of these decks. Um, you know, Similarly, Thassa's Oracle plus Demonic Consultation, or Neoform plus Demonic Consultation, or, you know, some set like this is also something you have to worry about. But, for some reason, people tend to view the decks that, you know, might try and play, like, I'm counting that as sort of a, a soft combo, right? If someone has three mana, they need some combo that gets them to five, and then the Ad Nauseam is the payoff for getting to five versus some way of assembling something like an oracle consult or playing like uh mm. like druid and swift wreck or whatever um 
people have a tendency to view the ad nauseum as much more threatening than or like something they need to be really careful of compared to you know the possibility of just getting sort of randomly consulted off like a tutor plus having one of the pieces or something like that um yeah, I was going to say, like, stacks decks, you know, like a, a, a green base stacks deck slamming Eidolon of Rhetoric and uh, Sylvan Safekeeper is, you know, depending on your deck, if, if you really struggle under a rule of law, that is maybe one of the most threatening things someone could ever do. You know, like, there's, there's like two outs to that, right? It's like Psych Rift and uh, Dress Down, or, or, you know, if you're on Deluge or something. Like, there's not many ways to out that um if you're required to out that to win the game and people will let that slide right like it's 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 the uh frog in a boiling pot like you know boils slowly um if you play the sylvan safekeeper and then later you're playing the eidolon it doesn't set off the alarm bells that it would if you're you know casting a bunch of spells into your ad nauseum or whatever yeah and and everyone remembers you know like the nas turn or the pita turn or whatever where the person just like flipped all these cards and cast all these spells and made a bunch of mana and assembled some combo. Um, and so, you know, decks that can do that are regarded as being very dangerous when, you know, often decks with like a lot of tutors, a more toolboxy orientation, but still a lot of tutors and relatively simple to assemble combos uh, are, are threat assessed much lower. Yeah, it is. It's also just the fact that like a lot of these stack decks win the game several turns before they actually close, right? Um, yeah. And if it just it, it it's less memorable to be like, well, we actually lost the game three turns ago when when he resolved this this protection in the stacks piece, um, or this like you know the, the third version of the stacks piece that makes it impossible to do this, or the the sanctum prelate to shut off the out of psych rift like you know that's when you actually lost the game but you know the you still have you know 25 life or whatever so that that is often just less memorable um but yeah no i, I think i always think it's a fun exercise to uh figure out when you're truly dead right like yeah yeah uh i, I think that does make you uh, a better player to kind of just track that i like your against yorian man it's like when when am I dead? When when can I concede? Because that deck does not close fast. Um, yeah. Next up, we have confirmation bias, which doesn't necessarily um, create false perceptions or or inaccurate perceptions, um, but reinforces them. And so this is you know if you think that say Rogsai is a really scary deck, um, when you see them nause you on turn two, you go. Ah, see, I knew it. Rogsai is a very scary deck, and you carry that forward into the next game. But when, you know, they just can't find that right hand, and they mulligan to four, and they don't really do anything, and they're, like, casting Silas to recur Lotus Petal and, like, maybe block, um, you don't go, oh, Rogsai, you know, has consistency problems, or, you know, maybe resiliency problems, or whatever. Um, it doesn't color your impression of the deck in the same way, and so um, you tend to uh, you tend to prioritize or, or put more weight on experiences that affirm the things that you already believe. Yeah, that, that also kind of ties into um, our next one, which is priming bias, 
right? Where you're more likely to be influenced by the, the first, the first kind of, uh, impression or, or idea or kind of conception of something. So like, you know, someone says, uh, Rog size, the fastest deck in the format, like you heard that, like you're more likely to, um, believe that and, and kind of roll with that and not like update with as more information comes out or you, you know, like, well, actually the goldfish of this deck is actually faster or whatever. It's like, no, no, no. Okay. Like this is, this was already in my head. I'm just going to kind of roll with that. Or, um, or even if you, yeah, even if you like believe it, there's still a sense in which like there's, there's a sense in which even if, you know, consciously you accept the facts um, you still have a perception of like, oh, you know, when I think super fast decks, I think, you know, whatever a person told me was the fast, you know, whatever I thought was the fastest deck first, mm -hmm. like, that's what I think of as like the standard for fast decks. Um, and that is obviously influenced a lot by, you know, perceived authority and community discourse. Um. And and so you know it's just it's very important to to be cognizant clout bias of man that. clout bias. <laughs> um, yeah, and then our last one of these cognitive biases is the status quo bias. So I find in a lot of games, um, oops, um, you might be basically dead on board. Um, and this is going to tie into kind of, we're going to loop back around to the actual individual metrics themselves and kind of identify which ones are like key areas where that you can kind of take advantage of, um, where I think we were, we were kind of discussing, we think there's like a community weakness and, or like a, yeah, I'd say, yeah, weakness, um, in accurately assessing things there. So like, Status quo bias is going to tie into this because people, once the board is kind of established, they're so reluctant to see things change. Like, you know, if one player is in a very, if, if things stay the same, they're going to win the game. Um, you know, what might be important is for to have another player come in and actually be threatening. Um, so that you're forcing the other player to have to contend with that other threat. Right. And then they're, you're, you're kind of shifting the power, making it harder, like loosening their grip on the game. But, um, you tend to see someone's like, well, you're doing something scary, uh, countered. Like I'm, I want to keep the status quo as is, and that can be so, so punishing. <laughs> um, yeah. Anything you want to say on that or, uh, no, I think that's, that's a good explanation. So I guess like where we sort of want to go with this is is like you know how do we how do we how, take how do advantage we, of this <laughs> yeah how, how do you how do we take advantage of this and how do we make sure we're not uh you know like in terms of other people's perceptions of our decks and how do we uh you know how do we make sure we're not falling prey to it so i guess let's let's start with let's start with how do we take advantage of it yeah i think I think there's like a, f a few key things. Um, first, I think the one of the biggest factors is uh, the first thing we said in that reason for discrepancy is that people hugely value speed. Um, and we've actually talked about this like a long, long time ago in, you know, decks that are trying to combo second. 
um, I think there's a lot of value in being perceived as the second fastest deck at the table. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. Um, yeah, no, it just... <sighs> And and the thing is, it, it is it is all about the perception too, not about um, the truth necessarily, right? Because you know, you're it. The speed is is you know, it's an average, right? And each player's hands are are going to vary. And so you know, let's say someone mulligans deep for like you know some really aggressive um, uh, hand with like mana crypt and stuff, fast mana. Um, they they could that could change depending on their seat position, how they're going to mulligan. Like, you know, you do need to kind of factor all of these things in. And also if there's two decks, you know, one is viewed as slightly faster than the other, that's going to, you know, people are going to be more concerned about that. But if it's really like only like point, you know, if it's decimals of a turn in terms of gold fishing, like that really shouldn't matter all that much in your goldfish, uh, sorry, in your threat assessment. Um, but it really, it really does. Um, so one thing, you know, deck selection, you know, take a deck that's not viewed as the fastest deck in the format. Um, that way you're not going to always find yourself in that position. Um, also start politicking, man, politicking and talk, because if you can, um, identify like, or, or, or just correct other people's threat assessment as well as your own, like kind of walk walk through why you think this person should actually be a threat or uh you know you're 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 viewing me as too much of a threat or, or whatever right maybe maybe even if it's the other you're not a threat at all but you want to make sure that um everyone else isn't falling prey to this to this trap and, and giving the game to the second fastest deck of the table um just talk it through and maybe sometimes people are gonna you know give a counter argument and it's going to correct your own threat assessment. So that's why, you know, I'm a very talkative player, um, in CDH. And I think our entire play group is that way, honestly. Um, but I find that it's like really, really helpful in tournaments. Um, what about you? Yeah, I think, I think, um, certainly talking is, you know, is great. And I, I think one of the, one of the things that people, I think under, estimate the value of is you know obviously there's like what gets talked about is the the like diabolically clever political maneuvers that you made to like totally shift threat assessment away from yourself and onto other people and they all just ignored you while you accrued value or whatever it is but also like sometimes just uh updating people's perceptions to to like match you know like if, if you think other people are suffering from biases just like pointing out the truth can be a very powerful tool and as you say you know maybe you're wrong like i've mm -hmm. certainly had had that experience sometimes where like i sort of i get stuck in a rut um i think this deck is really scary and i have like you know generally good reasons for that and i'll be like hey what you know what gives why are we you know letting this person get a pass and then like someone will point out it's like yeah well you know they they mulligan to five and they you know did this or that and Clearly, it seems like if they had something going on, they probably would have gone for it already. Um, and so, yeah, voicing voicing opinions like that, um, first of all, it lets you, it can let you correct other people's biases, and it can give other people a chance to uh, correct yours. And I think that's uh, very, very powerful. Yeah. Another one of the metrics we have highlighted um, is inevitability. And I think 
so that I tend to favor um, decks with high inevitability just because it's my preferred play style. Uh, I like to be in a position where so long as I can ensure we don't lose in the early game, I'm basically guaranteed to win in the late game because, you know, I mean, the, just given the composition of the deck and how things scale, that's going to be the case. But also because I think people are terrible um, at accurately assessing when to deal with the inevitable deck because you need the, the you know, let's say it's a control player, right? Um, you need that player on your team to help answer the very fast decks in the beginning. So like, you know, someone's going to nause, you can't, there can't be like only the only mid range player or something or the other turbo player being like, man, I have to play table please. That doesn't make any sense. No, like you need the control players help. Um, and often you keep getting back to this control player. You're like, Hey, can you help me with this? Blah, blah, blah. You're, you're everyone's friend that's stopping people from winning the game. And then, you know, they blink and then you've won because you've been accruing and you've been setting up these insane kind of engines. Um, so really knowing when to, um, hit the decks that have very high inevitability or that snowball. Um, people are terrible at assessing that and, and knowing when to interact. And, you know, you can really, really take advantage of that. Problem is, is that uh, a lot of decks with really high inevitability do not mesh well with the current structure of tournament CDH and round timers. Um, you know, normal CDH is played until people get bored and leave and concede <laughs> or they have other places to be. Uh, you know, I've played some insanely long games of CDH. Um, I think my record was like seven hours and that was like insane. Um, you don't want too many of those games, but, uh, you know, I do enjoy those every now and then. Um, I, I really think it's a fun puzzle when there's multiple decks that have high inevitability in, in the uh, pod because you start assessing you, you st your threat assessments diverges significantly from everyone else's where like you know someone is casting something pretty scary like a um i mean i've even let nazas resolve to, but countered like um like a fast flicker in yorian you know because it's like well i think i can handle the nas or you know i think we as a table can handle the nas uh, if Yorian gets their engine going, I am screwed. Um, I am my only real opponent in this pod is the other late game deck. I, I think that's such rewarding and fun gameplay. Um, and yeah, it is also just an area that I think um, the community is generally kind of weak at assessing. So play Dirtle decks. That's uh, the, the yes. Linden approved <laughs> advice. Um, I mean, you also play pretty a lot of inevitable decks as well. I. In certain ways, yes. Um, I tend not to take them to tournaments as much. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, I think I think I also I tend to play my decks more inevitably, which I think is somewhat to my detriment because they get assessed as if I'm not playing them conservatively when I mm. am. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, there is there is some truth to certainly. Uh, I play decks that tend not to mind going to the late game, with the obvious exception being I took Cody to a tournament. But yeah. <laughs> um, but setting that aside, um, yeah, I think uh, you know some of these are you know this isn't necessarily like a super helpful uh, answer when it comes to things like tournament results and discourse. Um, I mean, just sort of don't pick the decks that everyone's talking about 
like, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, if that's your deck and, you know, you've been, you've been playing, let's pick on, I don't know, something, di- you've been playing, no, we're, we're still going to pick on Magda. Um, just a, just a great example. You've been playing Magda for months and then it wins a tournament and everyone's talking about it. Um, you know, it may not be super helpful to hear like, Hey, now's not the time for Magda. Um, but the reality is that may just be the truth. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, I still respect you if you want to play, take the deck that you are really passionate about. Cause you know, sometimes that is, I, I, I want more people to play those kinds of decks. I think I talked about this in our, um, year in review, just play what you want, play what you're passionate about. Keep the format interesting. Don't just play what everyone is saying is the best deck. That's boring. Boo. Um, but yeah, no, if you're, if you're going in it, trying to spike it, you know, yeah, you know, be realistic. <laughs> Maybe Magda isn't the choice right after it won. Um, cool. And the last thing in our, um, kind of deck power metric, um, perceived threat level discrepancy would be, uh, resiliency where I think people tend to be pretty bad at they're 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 fairly good at assessing um what kind of stacks a deck is resilient to um and what types of interaction a deck is resilient to but i think there is opportunity um to find an edge where people are bad at assessing how much interaction is required to stop a deck how resilient is to amounts of interaction um so you know i think you know, I'll use a personal example. Riel um, tends to play a very inevitable game where you run so many freaking counter spells and stuff that you can stop people in the early game. But when you start accruing so much card advantage that when you go for your combo turn, you end up having like you know four or five counter spells. And you know, I'm, I've I've talked to um, Morgan and Reed before about. Uh, I think this was on our, our drive down to Punt City. I was like, I think. I can probably, I I think I'd probably have a higher win rate with Riel if I went for my win sooner um, before I had like, you know, five pieces of interaction because I think people aren't accurately assessing. Like, like I'm, I'm, I'm being like super cautious with how much interaction I, and protection I, I need when people are not respecting the deck or the win con like to that degree. So, you know that's that's an area where i can improve and i think you know other people might be able to improve as improve as well um yeah just see how people are reacting to you know how much interaction are they keeping up um when they when they're trying to stop you you know yeah anything to add uh not on taking advantage of it i guess now we just have to cover uh you know not falling prey to it and i think we've largely you know I mean, well, that's not true. I, I'd like to believe that um, explaining, you know, understanding how a bias works makes you <laughs> immune or at least resistant to it. There's but, a there's there has uh, to be a bias name for that, you know. Unfortunately, <laughs> that is not true. Um, both, yeah. you know, contemporary evidence as well as scientific studies bear this out. Um, so, you know, you do need to rather than just being aware that for example your perceptions are influenced by community discourse you do actually have to take steps to you know look at whatever you know maybe whatever data is available or um i mean sometimes it can just be as simple as like hey gold you know 
if you have a sufficient understanding of how the deck works, goldfish a few hands. Is it actually as fast as, you know, people are sort of making it out to be? Like, how often, you know, do you find, you know, you're able, like, this deck is able to set things up? And then as you sort of understand the deck a little better, um, some of the biases that may have influenced you uh, can can subside a little bit. I think one of the things too is it's just a lot of work and it can be tedious to really combat these biases. Um, you know, I think, you know, for, for like the clout authority discourse, echo chambers, all, all those kinds of biases, like, um, you just you need to do things like, you know, someone, someone puts up an opinion on a, on a deck or a card, like just take the opposite stance and, you know, try and justify like the opposite case and really, you know, if you can convince yourself that, you know, the opposite case is true, then maybe their argument is weak. You know, maybe it's not the case that it's completely, you know, the opposite is actually true, but maybe it's just that their argument is weak and you shouldn't be taking, you should be taking what they say, you know, not, you shouldn't be weighing that very highly. Um, and, you know, remember next time you're like trying to act on those assumptions, like, oh yeah, you know, I did, maybe I shouldn't kind of, um, think that this is the best deck in the format just because so-and-so said it. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's hard, requires active work and, and kind of conscious thought. Um, also another one is like habit building. You know, we are talking about talking in game and not necessarily just politicking, but announcing things like, I think so-and-so is the threat. Um, you know, that can be useful. Or one thing that's fun to do is um, shot calling tutors, right? So you need to be careful with this uh, in tournaments, but I think in uh, games uh, that are casual, it can be very useful to do this um, just to build the habits and the kind of like mental pathways for this, which is just to shot call tutors, right? Because um, in a tournament, you might call shot call tutor and you're like oh you're right that is the better tutor target and they'll go find that so you gotta be careful of that but you know otherwise you also look like gigabrained when you shot call like some niche tutor because you a new niche tutor target because you were able to accurately assess the board the situation um and you have good knowledge of their deck um yeah so doing things like that pointing out threats uh announcing uh, you know, throwing it out there being like, hey, so does anyone know how, does everyone know how this deck wins? Like, you know, maybe not saying, getting them to explain it to you, but just making sure everyone's on the same page and then being like, okay, well, for those of you who don't know, you know, he's going to do this and this and he's going to tutor for Clock of Omens and then he's going to do, he's going to do this massive chain or whatever. And, you know, if you have this kind of interaction, this is the time to use it, you know, declaring that, um, you know, because not everyone might be aware. Um, if I think in that instance, um, uh, that Koibito won, right in that finals pod, if someone had announced, this is the time to interact, or if you have interaction, hold it, uh, don't interact here. Uh, that might've actually, you know, changed the outcome of that tournament. Yeah. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I, I recognize that it's not sort of ideal in that a lot of our advice, is just kind of eat your vegetables. Um, but uh, Dude, play around you know. days, play around wasteland. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, keep... like I think I think what yeah. you pointed out is is important to acknowledge. Like it is work to you know, develop good impressions, accurate impressions, a good understanding of the format, um overcoming, you know, various biases that you might have accrued. Like all of this does take work. So, you know, don't 
feel bad if if like you are still running into problems from time to time or you think you know oh i i still don't know how to do x y z there's just a lot of you know there's just a lot of it um I also think this is like, and, this is like, these are fundamental habits too. These, you know, these are ones that, you know, we, we've talked in other episodes about like how to politic, how to do all like threat assess in game for certain things or like, you know, bluff or, or do all of these things. Those are more like advanced that are advanced techniques or strategies or, or whatever you want to call them um, that are dependent on having a good set of fundamentals. Um, and threat assessment is, and you know, the most fundamental thing in CDH, knowing what is the threat, what is most threatening and how to expend your resources or, you know, making sure everyone else is on the same page. Like that's so fundamental. Um, and you can build a lot off of this. So if you're going to put work into anything, put it into this first. Yeah. Um, cool, cool. Wraps it up for our main topic. Uh, I'm excited to hopefully, you know, speaking of like discourse and stuff, I hope this actually uh, sparks some discussion on our discord server. We've had some great uh, discussions in the general chat, you know, super lengthy posts, paragraphs, people sharing their opinions. I'd I'd love to hear um, people's opinions on kind of the structure we laid out for the power metrics um, for for decks and then also like you know ways to combat biases maybe we missed some stuff too you know i'd love to uh love to hear it um but yeah before we wrap up we have a listener question well let me oh god I need to make the screen a lot bigger <laughs> I'll, I'll read it <laughs> you read it uh, okay this is perfect asked a little while ago by uh mustard who asked how much of an edge does playing an unknown or obscure deck give you uh, for example, I've had multiple tables like combo pieces resolve in Maria because they do not understand the wind lines. Uh, this is from a few months ago when Maria was new. Um, but I think, Tremendous. you know, this, it ties in ties in very uh, nicely with sort of this discussion, which is um, it is an advantage right right up until it's not. Um, it It certainly, you know. It certainly can be a big advantage to have people not really understand what you're doing, not know how to stop you. Um, but, you know, that advantage can dry up very quickly if you just run into someone who understands. And the other issue is um, there is, uh, and maybe maybe we should have covered this a little bit more in the topic itself, uh, particularly with opacity, there can be sort of a reverse effect where um if people truly have no idea what you're doing sometimes that just means they like you know they just start flailing um and you know it's like i don't understand how to stop this deck uh so i'll just you know kill it and like people we saw this a lot with like uh karkashima right where it was like well i'll just never ever let them have two karks in play and that's not a terrible idea um because that, you know, that deck is very threatening. With something like Maria, you know, if someone just goes like, well, I'll just never let you have Maria in play, um, then they're obviously, like, way over-threat assessing you. Um, yeah, and that can be a, a disadvantage to over-threat assess something. It's not just a disadvantage to the player who um, 
is being over threat assessed or you know it, it's also can be disadvantage to you because you're like man i need them to contribute to stopping my other opponents and if they're completely dead in the water because they're so commander centric they can't de deploy stacks pieces they can't dig for interaction like now you're playing table police against two other players when you could have had someone who is like relatively under control but then also contributing to handling everyone else um so yeah like you know also, not over threat assessing is is an important um, is important yeah. as well. Uh, so I, yeah, I would definitely sort of to summarize. I would say it's an advantage, but not a reliable one. Um, you'll run into people who overreact to things they don't understand, and you will run into people who understand and you know, as we were talking about earlier, can explain to the rest of the table. So I I would not uh, rely on it. I think there's a Goldilocks zone, you know? Like, I actually think um, Riel, like, people, when, when when I take Riel to a table, people are like, how does he, like, they're not like, how does he win? They they know it's breach, right? Um, but where the opacity comes in is, like, how strong is, like, how inevitable is it? How How strong are his card advantage engines? Like, how much interaction removal like they don't know the deck list right like they don't they don't know the deck list itself they don't know the ratios of cards so you know they're not sure there but they know how i win so they're no they know the appropriate amount to be scared like you know well there's this kind of rule of law in place so you know i know he's not going to win through that or um whatever like there's there is a goldilocks zone if they just know nothing about your deck um you know people are really scared of the unknown so yeah um cool well, that about uh, wraps it up for this episode. If you guys would like to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or concerns, you can contact us on Twitter at IntoTheNorthPod, via our email, IntoTheNorthPodcast at gmail.com, or on our Discord server, the invite link for which can be found in the description for this episode. Extra special thanks to all of our patrons who help cover the expenses for our show and allow us to work towards improving the quality of the podcast. If you too would like to become a patron, we are at patreon.com slash IntoTheNorthPodcast. Another way you can support us is via our TCG Player affiliate link, so anytime you want to purchase something from TCG Player, if you use our affiliate link, which is in the podcast slash YouTube description, a portion of your purchase goes towards supporting the podcast. Thank you as always to the band Vox Cadre for our lovely podcast music, and to Nate Slover for our equally lovely podcast logo. Next episode will be out in two weeks. Until then, see ya. Have a good one.